Well, come on back. And uh, we are going to take a shot at uh, chapter 7 of the book of Jeremiah. Anybody remember what Jeremiah's name means? The appointed one or appointed? And certainly he was appointed to a really difficult mission. And we certainly thank Andy Mashenko for teaching the last couple weeks, and we appreciate his good and hard work. Yeah. And now we come to chapter 7. Now, I know this is unorthodox, but that's sort of the way I roll. If you don't have that paper, man, this paper is killer to have as a key. I don't know if there's any more on the back, but this is a list that I wrote out of the kings. And I don't know how you would know or get the most out of chapter 7 if you didn't know the history that we're about ready to talk about. Do you know that there was a kingdom split in Israel? So the 12 tribes of Israel split into two kingdoms. And that happened way before our story that is going to take place tonight, but it split into the 10 tribes of Israel in the north and the two tribes of Judah in the south. And Jeremiah, the appointed one, is prophesying right here around 608, 609 B.C. I I know some of you hate history, but man, if you get this, it'll make this come alive. And so he's prophesying between what I consider the two most important dates of the Old Testament. And that date, those dates are 722 B.C. In that year, the Assyrians came into the northern tribe of the, or the northern area of Israel and ripped out into exile the ten northern tribes. And oh, by the way, they then marched on Jerusalem and they surrounded the gate or the, the walls, and by miracle, they didn't take Jerusalem. So now you come forward about a hundred more years, a hundred plus a few, to about 609 BC. And many of the kings of Judah, almost all of them, a few of them were okay, but most of them aren't that great. There are a few okay. Until this eight-year-old boy. How about that? An eight-year-old boy who was a king named Josiah takes the throne in southern Judah, in Judah. And he has these great reforms. And in about his mid-20s, in about his mid-20s, okay, they're searching through the temple areas, and a priest named Hilkiah, why am I pausing right there? Because Jeremiah's father was named Hilkiah. We don't know exactly if it was the exact one, but it probably was. uh, uh, Jeremiah came from a history of priests. And this guy named Hilkiah in Josiah, this eight-year-old king's reign, he's now 25 or 26-year-old, is searching through the temple area, and they find the book of law. 
And that's during Josiah's time, which was around 640 to 608 BC. So, so are you catching what I'm saying? And, and when Josiah had, him, had everybody read it to him, or he read it himself, he started to rip his clothes, and he was like, what are we doing? We're, this is madness. We've, we've deviated from God's law. And he started these reforms. And some of the reforms were take the idols out of the temple, <laughs> uh, take down the high places, instituting the festivals again, like the Passover, etc., right? So he started having the country follow God's law. That's how lost even Judah had become. Get it? Well, he, th- this young man uh, then engages in some sort of <laughs> shaky deal. He kind of goes up into the northern areas of Israel in, in a, a, a fight that he shouldn't have probably engaged himself in. Uh, and a pharaoh, a king of Egypt, um, comes out and kills him up in northern uh, areas of Israel in the valley of Megiddo. And you can find that in 2 Kings 23, 29, right in there. So Josiah, who's the great reformer, is dead. And then if you have my crazy little list, it's okay if you don't, we'll get you more, you'll see that there was another guy that came right in there. His name was Jehoahaz, and he reigned about three or four months, just very brief. He was Josiah's son, and this pharaoh from Egypt also carried him off didn't kill him off, but first carried him off back to Egypt, and then he died there, and that's in 2 Kings 23 as well. And then a guy named Jehoiakim, a brother of Jehoahaz, he comes into power, okay? And so there's some questions about when Jeremiah is talking here in chapter 7, was he talking during the reign of Josiah, or was he talking uh, during the reign of one of the other two kings I just mentioned? But here's what we know. We know after Josiah died, guess what happened to Judah? They slipped back, and all the reforms that the young king had made just almost immediately went away. And they brought idols back into the temple, they instituted some things uh, in terms of putting back up the high places. I'll tell you about that here as we read. And it, it just basically went away, which tells us something, doesn't it? You can't legislate morality. There has to be something else more than just external controls. Now, are external controls good? Yes. Romans 13 and other places tell us that Yes, the government's set up to uh, restrain evil and do right and all that sort of thing, but it can't change anybody or a nation in there. That's number one. But during, also with that backdrop, think about it. They're at a place of national crisis. Wow, we had a good king, but we've lost all hope in a good king, and our society is sort of spiraling out of control in evil, and we're just going to give in to it. It almost sounds like today. It does sound like today. And with that backdrop, see, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah here in chapter 7, 
Verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, catch this, stand at the gate of the Lord's house. Now, what do you know about Jeremiah? He comes from a priestly family, folks. You imagine how incredibly awkward this would be? Especially if his dad was the one who, in Josiah's time, maybe this is still in Josiah's time, we're not exactly sure, but think about it. His dad's one that found the law, and, and, and he's going to have to say some things even against leadership, etc. I mean, come on. I bet when he received the word, there was that little flicker of, why me? I don't know if I want to do it. My family, what will they think? How about that one? And here it says that he was to, the Lord tells him that you're to stand in the gate. You're to stand in the gate of the Lord's house. Now, other places in Chronicles, in other words, or other places, but mostly in Chronicles, I think 2 Chronicles 35, but don't quote me on that. Somewhere in Chronicles, there is a suggestion that what Jeremiah is talking about is the temple, or excuse me, the Passover feast, and that people are coming back. So you know this, right? That the males were to take their families back on three occasions to the city of Jerusalem and attend festivals. And if Josiah reinstituted that, that would be like a new holiday. You get it? And people would be excited and ready to go, and there would be throngs of people heading towards the Temple Mount. Are you catching it? And God says to to, uh, Jeremiah, you're going to go and stand right there in the religious areas. It would be like somebody, you know, in the biggest church in Pittsburgh or, I don't know, Philadelphia or New York City or whatever, Los Angeles. I want you to just stand outside as the people are coming for Christmas Eve, and I want you to give this message. Now, think about that, because this ain't going to be a popular message. So he stands in the gate of the Lord's house, and he proclaims there his, this word and say, say this, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, <laughs> amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words. Now think about what the lying words are saying, the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave uh, to your fathers forever and ever." Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I have even seen it, says the Lord. Sound familiar? Our Lord referred to that verse. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did 
to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, circle this if you hate getting up early, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you didn't hear, and I called you, but you didn't answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers as I have done to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. Therefore, is this, is this unusual or what? Don't pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough. That's funny, but anyway, to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? This is really key. Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? That's sin, folks. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruits of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. For I didn't speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet, yet they didn't obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and dictates of their evil hearts, and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent you to all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them, yet they didn't obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Therefore, you shall speak all those words to them, but you will, they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they won't answer. I know this is long, but I'm going to read this to you because this is shocking. So you shall say to them, this is a nation that doesn't obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Cut off uh, your hair and cast it away and take up a lamentation on the desolate heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name to pollute it. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will be no more called Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Tophet until there is no room. The corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. Then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. Hmm. Well, we need help uh, to decipher or to, to understand this, so let's pray. Lord, thank you so much uh, for this 
bit of Scripture, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand all that you would have for us here in um, this portion of Scripture and that you'd help us to understand what you need us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you bring me that or hand me that, please? I left something in there. My quotes. I won't be able to give you the good quotes. So, thank you. Okay, so, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, stand in the gate of the Lord. The first thing you should know is if you went over to chapter 26, do that. Go over to chapter 26. This may have been something that God gave to uh, uh, Jeremiah to preach on more than one occasion. Some people believe what we're about ready to read is the same sermon. Some people believe it's the same sermon given twice at different festivals. Whatever, it has the same sort of um, uh, you know, connotation, I guess. But look at this. In the beginning chapter 26, verse 1, uh, of the reign of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, sorry, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came from the Lord saying, thus says the Lord, stand in the court, not the gate. That's why some people think it's different. I don't know about that, but whatever. Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah, which come to worship. All the words that I command you to speak to them. Don't diminish a word. Perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way that I may relent concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you won't listen to me to walk in my law, which I've set before you, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you, both rising up early and uh, sending them, then I will make this house like Shiloh and make this city a curse to all the nations. So the priests and prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now it happened when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people. Listen, is this awkward or what? That the priests, his friends and family, or at least people he knew, think about it, the priest and the prophets and all the people seized him, saying, You will surely die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate? And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. Can you imagine? Think about that. You standing outside Christmas Eve, giving the message that the Lord for sure had given you, no doubt, and everybody's ticked at you, and they come and they get in your space including people who you love, folks. <laughs> what would you be saying? <laughs> Not, Lord, <laughs> help me, <laughs> or I don't know if I can do this anymore, or whatever. There's no hint of that with Jeremiah. There is some lamentations and some crying, but think about how wholly bold this man must be to tell the truth. Think about how desperate you must be for God's presence and power in your life to lovingly tell truth that God has asked you to tell. You ever know you had to talk to somebody about something really difficult and you get the pit in your stomach? Am I the only one? And what do you need? Do you need more will? No, you need the Lord and his balm, his way of saying things, his love for people, his truth but love. And here he comes uh, whether this is two sermons or one, 
And he's right there in the middle of the house, and he's saying to these people, amend your ways and your doings, chapter 7, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. But don't trust in these lying words, saying, the temple, the temple, the temple. Now, what are we getting? What is he getting at here? What, what do you need to know about Israel or Judah? What do you need to know about the, the Jews? What? what? What is the temple? Well, think about these things. In 2 Samuel 7, you know this, don't you? If you don't know 2 Samuel 7, it's really key for the Old Testament. God made a covenant with the line of David. And how long did he say the line of David would be on the throne of Israel for? Ever. Now think about that. The line of David on the throne, the throne forever. So he's got this covenant with Israel. And in Psalm 132, you can look it up later, verses 13 through 18, God chose, catch this, Mount Zion as the place where he would dwell. You could read about it. Mount Zion. What's Mount Zion? That's where the temple is, or that's where the temple mount is. You get it? And so these people would know the Psalms. Wait a minute. He's made a covenant with the king, the greatest king of Israel. Mount Zion is the place where he's going to dwell. And I just referred to it earlier on when I was telling you, who could hurt us? The Assyrians came down here. A hundred years ago, we talk about it all the time in our schools. We tell this story. And they got right up to the gates, but God's presence was here, here at the temple. There's no possible way it could happen to us. We've got what? The temple. See, here's what I think the writer, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is getting at is that outward religious stuff never counts unless there's inward life and devotion. And it's clear from the rest of these chapters, or this chapter, excuse me, it's clear from the rest of this chapter that these people who are coming up to the gates on you know, like a Christmas Eve, but for them, for Passover or one of the festivals, this great holiday, they were going to the church or to the temple to do the thing that they were prescribed to do by some sort of law or obligatory duty. How do I know that? Well, here's how I know it. Look down in verse 8. Behold, you trust in lying words. What are some of the lying words? The lying words are temple, the temple, the temple. Some people might say some things like this. Born again, born again, born again. Some people might say baptism, baptism, baptism. Some people may say church attendance, church attendance, church attendance. Some people might say I'm a hard worker in the committees, in the church. I'm not going to say that three times. (laughs) Some people might say, I'm a big giver. I'm a big giver. I'm a big giver. And they're trusting in things. We trust in things. How about this one? Oh, my gosh. I'm almost done with the two-year Bible plan. 
I've checked it off every single day. It's been amazing. You, can you believe how righteous I am? He says in verse 8, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal? Because that's what they were doing. Will you murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal in the other uh, accounts? They were burning incense to both Baal and Molech. Molech is the god that they sacrificed to. Firstborns. Will you do all these things? Will you walk after other gods whom you do not know? And then will you come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, listen to this, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Are you catching what's happening here? Outside, they're living like hell. Then on the prescribed date of the festival... They're coming through the gates with all their great stuff on. And they're sitting down in the seats and acting as if nothing really is happening because I'm here for the festival. Everything's going to be okay. I can just come in here and I'm good because I came 50 times or 38 times or whatever and that's my quota. And wow. But nothing was translating to a life of obedience. And they came in here and they acted like nothing was wrong with no repentance. In fact, it says, we were, now we can do all these abominations because we've come in here and taken care of our obligations. If that doesn't sound like American Christianity, I don't know what does. You see, Here's the point, though, catch this. These people, like the American church, want justification without sanctification. That's what they want. And the problem is, for them, is that you can't take the, uh, you separate the two. You can't separate the two. What is justification? It's declaring you righteous. What is sanctification? It's God making you righteous. I mean, write that down. Justification is a judicial or spiritually judicial decree. You are righteous by the blood of Christ and his new life. Sanctification is that setting apart and God propelling us down the path to Christ-likeness to become conformed into the image of his son. Here's the problem with America, just like it was in Judah. We want to come in here and say, yeah, praise the Lord, brother. Yeah, pray for you, man. And then we want to go through there and look at bad stuff on our phones. 
or, or we want to go through there and gossip and damage people or participate in ungodly drama because that's just what we like to do or we're stealing from our work or we're cheating on our taxes or we're involved in idol worship that we won't admit is idol worship. Like, here's some idol worship, like our career. Is it good to have a career? Of course. God says you should work, and you can do it as under the Lord, but our career becomes greater and higher, and we pursue that with everything we are and yet give the scraps to the Lord. Or we can make relationships an idol. Is it great to have relationships? Yes, but not if they're out of place, uh, elevated above the Lord. Image can be an idol. What do people think about us, see about us? I mean, Instagram, Facebook, all that sort of thing. Image can be an idol. What, what other things can be an idol? Sex, money, rock and roll, I mean, whatever. Uh, you know, football, that's me. Uh, music, uh, Netflix. We got Christians that spend hours and hours upon Netflix when people all around us are dying. Is there anything wrong with watching a movie? No, not a, no but, but when you, you know, we're the number one leader in time on Netflix, I think. Oh, my goodness. Well, so we can have idols everywhere, but here's the part that you need to know. Anytime we pursue idols, see, idols will kill you. You know why? Because the per- person or spirit behind, I keep saying that, the spirit behind idols is the enemy of our souls. It's the devil, and he wants to take a piece of you, if not all of you. And when you submit to an idol, it could even be some worthless, you know, some stuff that could be turned into good stuff. I mean, but when you pursue idol, it it just leads to death. I mean, I mean, you can idolize your kids. And what happens is you take them and you put them at the center of the universe God says they're not at the center of the universe. Would you die for your kids? Yes, you would. You'd love them so much you'd die. But listen, they're not the center of the universe. The Lord is the center of the universe, and we revolve around him. But American parenting is put them in the center, and then all the things. Oh, you got a baseball game? We'll all you know, trot around that. Oh, you got this thing and that thing? Oh, well, we'll all just bend our, every bit of our schedules for you because you are the center of the universe. Instead of cooperate, you get it? And what happens is you can kill a family that way. You can kill this kid, maybe not physically, but you can kill him from, or her from living out in life, a godly life, and it just, all their lives, it just, they can't overcome the fact that they're not the center of the universe, but God is. And I'm just picking one issue. And what happens is when we serve that, the idol's out to get us because the Spirit behind it is out to get it. One pastor puts it this way, false gods and goddesses always abuse their worshipers. Always abuse their worshipers. And here he says, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And I don't know if you caught what was happening here, but they were saying, just like coming up on Christmas, man, I'm going to live a certain way, but I can go to church and be forgiven Man, it is such a dangerous pace to be. In fact, 
you know it, I bet, but turn over to Romans 7. In the New Testament, Paul addresses this. You, you know what a dangerous place to be is? Is to be presumptuous, presumptuous with the grace of God. See, because that's what we're talking about here. God has picked and chosen the nation of Israel, Judah here, and they, he set up these commandments and laws. Yes, but, you know, that they would follow them and obey them. Yes, but they were pointing to something greater and higher. And the Lord was saying, this is all designed so that you'll be devoted and follow me and obey me. And they walked away. And not only did they walk away, they did these abominable practices that God said don't do. But then they would come up into God's temple. Can you imagine coming up into God's temple and saying, bring the abominations in. Everything's okay. We're here. The temple will save us. I mean, it's, it's like tramping on God's grace. And it's, yet, it's what we do. You know, what it, you know when we do it, and I'm guilty of it, is when we, you know, you've just had, and you come up through there unrepentant. You, you get what I'm saying? You just come up through there unrepentant, and you just, you know, you've had the fight with your best friend or your sister or your mom or whatever, and you just come up there unrepentant, and you just sit here and you do your little ritual and you listen to the music and you go out of here with a big smile and you walk out just as unrepentant as you walked in. You know what we're doing? We're just tramping on God's grace. And Paul says, don't you remember this? In chapter 7, he says, my goodness, don't you know, brethren, I speak to those who know the, the law, that the law has dominion over his man as long as he, oh, sorry, I was in the wrong spot. It's verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would have not known sin except through the law. For I've uh, not uh, known covetousness unless the law, uh, excuse me, had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner uh, of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came... um, Okay, I'm messed up. <laughs> it's in 6. It's in 6.15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Sorry, folks. Certainly not. Do you not know to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience living to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered and have been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. What then, going back to verse 15, shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? No, there's no way. You don't understand. If, if, if you're coming up here unrepentant, going through the motions, it's not impacting you, and then you're going right back out in the same unrepentant manner, you don't get the grace of God, neither do I. Have, let me ask you something. Don't raise your hand. You ever done that? I'll raise my hand. So go back. 
because there's interesting things here. So remember now, back... um, By the way, there's this fascinating thing that has nothing to do with the sermon I'm teaching tonight. But in verse 7, it says, Then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that gave to your fathers forever and ever. Many people who believe that the land of Israel, uh, the giving of the land of Israel was fulfilled in Joshua's time. Okay? Many people who are involved in the Mideast peace crisis right now believe that the book of Joshua says, and there's some language in the back of the book, that the land obligation that God made to Israel was fulfilled in the book of Joshua. So it makes a difference when you're negotiating in the peace process. You get it? Two-state solution. One, you get what I'm saying? Does it belong to Israel or not? Joshua happened four to 600 years before this verse, and I want you to read it. It's almost so clear. It is so clear. Then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers. How long? Forever and ever. And he said this four to 600 years after the verses that they point to that says the land obligation was fulfilled. Everybody tracking with me? Okay. So you trust in lying words that can't profit. And you say this, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and you say, we are delivered to all, do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? You see, you see what the, the Lord is telling him to say? You people come up the steps, not you people, <laughs> the people in the story. <laughs> the people come up the steps, and you're, you're saying this, and they live like that out there, and they're unrepentant as they come. And God's saying, when you go in there, you make that place a den, a place where you can hide secret sins because you act like everything's great and you're holy and pious, but inside there's no humility, confession, or repentance. Do you get it? And Jesus referred to that. You know that. that he indicated that uh, they were making his house a den of robbers instead of a house of prayer. Warren Wearsby says this, any theology that minimizes God's holiness and tolerates people's deliberate sinfulness is a false theology. We've got to watch it, man. Who's for grace here? All of us, right? Man, do I love grace. Who's for mercy here? Oh, man, do I love mercy. Thank the Lord for mercy. Withholding from us what we deserve. Thank you, Lord, for that. Grace, giving to us what we don't deserve. Oh, praise the Lord. But neither grace nor mercy asks us to just flippantly or in an unrepentant manner commit sin and just walk up here in a blasé manner. No way. It's a dangerous place to be. Paul said, certainly not would we ever do that. That's sheer stupidity, he says. Well, go on, it says, but go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first. Where I set my name at the first. You, you need to know that this is something that you would want to know. What, what and where was Shiloh? Well, Shiloh was a little bit up to the north, and the congregation and the people of Israel in the book of Joshua. Do you remember this? They set up the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the the movable tent that was before the immovable temple in Jerusalem. They set it up at Shiloh. Did you know that? And it stayed there for hundreds and hundreds 
of years. And in the tent of the meeting was where the Ark of the Covenant was contained. Did you know this? And what was in the Ark of the Covenant? The presence of the Lord, the Shabbat. But um, when Samuel went to serve Eli at the temple, he didn't go to Jerusalem. He went up to Shiloh. But the people didn't obey God. I don't know if you remember this. Because the ark didn't remain in Shiloh, they carted the ark off to a battlefield. To, it was like a good luck charm against the Philistines. And when the Philistines saw it, they were like, oh no, they got God. We're in trouble. But the people of Israel were using the ark of the covenant like a, like a lucky rabbit's foot. And what happened to them? They got destroyed and the Philistines took the ark of the covenant. And that's a funny story because remember, they set it up in the temple Dagon. And Dagon kept falling over on its face. Remember that? So that ark was taken to a place called Beth Shemesh and then to Kiriath-Jerim, where David later found it and brought it up to Jerusalem. So listen, are you catching what I'm trying to tell you? The temple or the tabernacle with the ark of the covenant, the presence of the Lord, was in Shiloh. But it left Shiloh... (laughs) And it was there no more. And it was, Shiloh was sort of wrecked. You can actually go to Shiloh sometimes when you go over to Israel and take a tour. Shiloh's in the West Bank. So oftentimes if it's too tense, they won't let you in there. But if it's not too tense, they let you go in there and actually stand on the ground where they think the tent of the meeting actually was housed for all those hundreds of years. Isn't that fascinating? Anyway, let's now consider what Jeremiah is having to tell the people. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh. In other words, Jeremiah was saying, God wants you to go to the place where he won't be. Because of the way you're unrepentant in your sin, and you're faking it, and you're not living an obedient life, you're destined for a place where God is not or where he isn't. You get it? That's what they're saying right here and where I set my name at the first and see what I did it uh, to because what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people and now because you have done all these works says the Lord and I spoke to you when did God spoke speak to the people when because he rose up early and he was speaking in the morning I'm saying morning but you didn't hear, and I called you, but you didn't answer. I want you to think about something. What did you do this morning? I personally believe, (laughs) you're going to think I'm crazy. I, I personally believe your Christianity rises and falls in what you do in the morning. When the Lord speaks to you in the quiet of wherever you are, are you just jumping in the car like I'm apt to do and kind of pray as you speed along to wherever you're going, ask the Lord to bless, or are you sitting down for concentrated time where the Lord will speak? I want you to see something. The Lord is saying right here, I would have talked to you and helped you and made you strong and felt secure, and you'd have never felt obligatory. You'd have felt that grace, love, that response of love, but you would never meet with me. That's what he's saying right here. 
You didn't hear, and I called you, you, but you didn't answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. Folks, it's 609 or 608 B.C. What's coming in about 14, 23 years? The Babylonians are going to come and take them out too. Therefore, look at this, what he tells Jeremiah, God, to Jeremiah. Don't pray for the people. (laughs) That's sort of a hard one to explain. In fact, in chapter 11, verse 4, and chapter 14, verse 11, he says the exact same thing. Don't pray for the people. Why is that? I don't know. No, I have some ideas. You got to know that God knows they're not going to repent. That's one thing. He knows they're not going to repent. Does God give up on people? No. How do I know that? Because Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and he lives to intercede for us. So we can always pray, and no sinner is ever on this side of the cross or ever uh, beyond the extent of God's hand. Of course not. But there does come a point, it seems, you could look in 1 John 5. You could look in Genesis when God stops striving with man. And here he says to them, don't pray for them anymore. They, and, um, he doesn't say it right here, but this is what he's saying. They must go through the judgment. In order for there to be growth or impurities taken away, the judgment has to come. They're never going to listen. So he says, don't pray for them. And then he says in verse 17, do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? I want you to catch this. There's a breakdown in the church of people who are coming up out of the streets for Christmas and Easter and whatever other high holy days we create. (laughs) And we're unrepentant. We just live like hell, and then we come in here and we just ask for forgiveness, and we think, "Oh, oh, that's fantastic. Instead of lamenting for our sins. That's not ungraceful. That is the grace of God. Read Titus. God's grace is not wimpy. It's not a cry, crutch. God's grace is a transforming grace. And sometimes he has to chisel and chip. Well, here, notice what follows the breakdown of the church or what actually precursors the breakdown of the church. It's the breakdown of the family. Read this. What are the families participating in? The ch- children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. That's a reference, we think, maybe to like Ishtar, the Babylonian goddess, but it could be other goddesses. But hey, folks, in our day, we certainly have a, a, a queen of heaven. We call her that in some traditions, and her name's Mary. A co-redemptress, people say. When the Bible tells us there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ himself. So here you have families. Look at this. The dads and the moms are asking the children to participate in other God worship or idol worship. You say, well, come on, that don't happen today. Really? Oh, my goodness. See, you know, you know, your four foot two little boy make three three pointers with his left hand, and all of a sudden he's going to be an NBA player. And the parents 
come around like, oh my gosh, my son's going to be in the NBA and I got to get him to every game and blah, 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 blah. And the whole family is set up for this little four point, four foot two kid because he can make a three pointer to try to get him into the NBA. And the whole rowing of the family becomes that. And I got news for you the kid's only going to be about four foot ten. He ain't going to the NBA, folks. That's not being mean. We're pouring into kids the wrong priorities. And it's like we're participating in the idol worship with the kid. Is there anything wrong with loving basketball and playing it? No, Tim Tebow does a great job with that stuff. I know he doesn't play basketball. But you get what I'm saying. It can be done. But you know, if you've lived in the communities where I live, you see it every Saturday. You're like, am I in the twilight zone here? Parents are just leading their kids to the slaughter. They're not training them up in godliness, but they're training them up in idol worship. And it just doesn't have to be sports. It can be a million things. And here, what's interesting is they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. But I want you to catch this. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Are you catching what he says? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? It's the o- their own sin that causes their shame. It's nothing that I'm doing. God says, they're doing it to themselves, and they are just running around, running around, running around, thinking they're doing such great things for the four-foot-two kid and the whole family, and blah, blah, blah. And all the time, they're destroying themselves. It's really sad. Therefore, says the Lord God, verse 20, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man, on beast, on the trees of the field, etc., and it will be burned in question. The Lord of hosts, verse 21, and listen to this. He says, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifice and eat meat. Now, think what a burnt offering is. you got to know Leviticus. Uh, who, who groaned? Oh, my goodness. You might, you're going to get kicked out on your birthday, Catherine. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> But listen, listen, you got to know what a burnt offering was. A burnt offering was the only offering that couldn't be eaten by somebody human. It was com- to be completely consumed by the fire, by the Lord. And the Lord said, if you're acting this way, if you're coming up out of the streets unrepentant, living a life like that and posing and faking and not being, uh, not being humble and confess, he said, take your burnt offering and go make a hamburger and eat it yourself. I don't want it. That's what he just said right there. Religious rituals without an inward heart do nothing. Nothing. Verse 23, but this is what I commanded. I said, obey my voice and I will be your God. Remember, he brought them up out of Egypt. What he's telling them there is, don't forget, before I made all the rules, what you could eat, what you couldn't eat, how you washed your hands, how you didn't wash your hands, that's Leviticus. Before that, I made the Ten Commandments obedience. Obedience has always been tied to our relationship, the people of God. You getting it? Now, do you obey now to get to heaven? Of course not. You trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But a person who has the Holy Spirit and has been born again is saved unto good works that require obedience. A lot different if you can catch that. Yet they didn't obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels. Look, 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 look. 
People say this on Facebook today. You could go out on Facebook and read this a million times. Just follow your heart. That's what this says. But they followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts. Just follow your heart. You read that and you're like, Christian, if you're a Christian, please don't put that on Facebook. You can't trust your heart. That's what the Lord's saying. They wanted to trust their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. And since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent you to all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they didn't obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Therefore, you shall speak this word to them, but they won't obey. You shall call to them, but they will not answer. Hey, thanks, God. He's saying, I want you to keep doing this, and nobody's going to pay attention to you. Would you do it? Would you stand out of the steps in Los Angeles or New York City to the people who know you and love you and tell them these things if the Lord told you you're never going to see any fruit that you think's fruit, but I want you to do it? That's what Jeremiah did, which tells you something in God's economy, faithfulness is what he values over success, what we call success. He just wants you to be faithful. And I'm asking, what has God called you to do? I'm serious. Sometimes I get people that come to us and they say, you know, I want to, I'm, I'm just making something up. So if you do this, don't get mad. I want to set up the chairs. Great. Praise the Lord. Be here at nine o'clock. Set up the chairs. Now we are Whatever, our chairs don't need set up, so I'm just thinking some. And they do it for two weeks. And then you don't see them again. And it doesn't hurt my feelings, but the Lord just says, if I'm calling you to something, just keep doing it. Do it. That's how you'll be judged, is on your faithfulness, not your success, or what the world calls success. Let's finish out with this. So you shall say to them, this is a nation, verse 28, that doesn't obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Cut off your uh, hair and cast it away and take up a lamentation. That was a, when you, when you cut off your hair, remember the Nazarite vow, Samson took a Nazarite vow, he grew his hair. When you cut off your hair, that was a sign of grief or, or repentance or anguish over your sins or the sins of someone, okay? That's what he's talking about there. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. You get it? Josiah took them out. They came right back in. Now the abominations are come back. They've set up idols. And they've built the high places of Tophet. What does Tophet mean? It means fireplace or oven. Which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. If you come to Jerusalem with us, you'll, come, you'll see it. You can hit a golf ball from the walled city right down into the little valley of Hinnom. Not a little valley. It's a big valley. But it's right there. You can see it. This is the Again, fireplace. And it was to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. Now, you know in Exodus 22, 29, and 30, it says that the Israelites were supposed to take their firstborn sons and take them and offer them to the Lord. 
But they weren't talking about child sacrifice, folks. They meant just like what we did with Brit the other day, offering them up to the Lord, dedicating them to the Lord. But these people decided that they were going to burn their sons and daughters. What led them to this? Yeah, Satan is exactly right. Satan was behind all of it, but I want you to catch something. They were worshiping other gods, the queen of heaven, goddesses. You say, well, we don't ever do that. Well, we described one earlier. We worship Mary in some places. I mean, we worship uh, supermodels. Our poor sisters in the Lord, they airbrush these people and do these things on TV and they do these things and they act like they're goddesses. And we create these little play dolls and they're not realistic and that's how we're supposed to be as girls or ladies or women or whatever. And we could go on and on and on. Pornography has objectified women in such ways. It's so awful. And why am I saying that is We've propped all of those things up, the things that I've just mentioned. And it's like it's a, the worship of those things, goddesses in this case, could be gods. You know, I'm not picking on ladies, but have, it's a direct line to a deterioration to the point where you say, I'm not happy with just worshiping one God. I'm going to worship two gods. Oh, I'll worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but let's bring in a couple others. When in reality, you do that, you're not worshiping God at all because God says, I am the way and the truth of the life. No one comes to me. I'll share my glory with no one. It's me or no one <laughs> because he knows, not because he's some egotistical one, he knows that the safest and greatest place to be is when you direct your worship to him. Because all of you, every one of us, are made to worship something, him. But we worship all these other things. But as soon as we bring in another or something different, remember, these false gods and goddesses want to abuse their worshipers, and it deteriorates quickly to the point where they're sacrificing their children. And what's evil about this is I don't think they're delirious or crazy. You say, they have to be crazy to do this stuff. I don't think so. I think they got to the point when they bring, it, bring in the other gods that they're like, whoa, we're going to march up to the Temple Mount, right near the Temple Mount, and we're going to do what the gods tell us to do. And it blinded their eyes, and it created this atrocity. God's never for the killing of the child. That baby in there, I know, I know it's in the mother's womb, but that's a baby, a person. We have been doing this, and we could go on and on about this. But as we finish out, watch. Therefore, oh, by the way, Exodus 22 bringing your child and uh, uh, presenting them to the Lord, you see how it's awful to take a scripture out of context, what can lead to? Oh. Therefore, verse 32, behold, the days are coming when it will be no more called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnon, 
but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Tophet until there is no room. The corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. Then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. I just want you to see something, how... I just want you to see here, did you catch that? That's such a weird verse, how the makeup of the family is intertwined with the church. Did you catch that? And when we start to worship other gods as a family, it creeps into our churches and it can obliterate the marriages. Because when we do that, whether we're worshiping a sport or some lifestyle or whatever, that false god will abuse the worshiper. And it's the enemy of our souls is out to take us out. Even the things that we mentioned, objectifying women, it leads to all kinds of things, anxiety and sexual assaults and, oh, it's awful, and sex trafficking, it's terrible. One commentator said this, the place where the sanctuary was would eventually become their cemetery. Because what would happen here is when the Babylonians came in, they were just going to decimate the whole area. Now, let me tell you something as we close. I know we've gone long. Watch this. It is bad how they lived. By the way, if you check all of these things out, they violated every commandment. If you go through this again, I won't do it now. They violated every commandment. So God was like, what are you guys doing? And then you walk up in here and you're unrepentant. But here was the even worse sin than the way they were living. They, their necks got stiff and they refused to repent when God told them what was wrong. That is right. But here's the problem. A lot of us do that exactly. God says to some of us, take your phones and throw them in the trash and break them and never see them again because it's causing a problem for you. And you say, well, here's what you say. I'm an important guy at work. I need that for my emails. Hmm. Okay. Or, you know, every time you sit up there, God says, all it leads to is this terrible trashing of other people. And you go, yeah, but I want to witness to the person. Yeah, right. Yes, it's bad the way they lived. And yes, we're to live a godly life. And yes, God is propelling us down the road to Christ-likeness. But when the Bible says, and it does in Hebrews, we're to pursue holiness without which we won't see God, part of it is when he asks you to take something out of your life or to admit and repent and confess that we do it. Here in the American church, though, we don't have a lot of lamenters because we have a lot of people who want the fire insurance but not the process of being more Christ-like. Well, as we close, let's just do this. Let's pray. And listen, I rarely do this, but I'm going to ask you. 
I'm the only one standing other than Gabe, so it just must be me and Gabe. But I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and I'm not trying to embarrass you. Close your eyes. But if there's something that the Lord is asking you to repent of, and by the way, I'm standing, if that tells you anything. I just want you to stand. You, you don't have to tell us what it is. Stand up, because the Bible always asks us to respond. If there's something that you need to repent, you know the Lord's telling you, you know that you need to ask for forgiveness or take this out of your life. I just want, I'm not even going to look. I'm just going to ask you to stand, and we're all going to pray together. If you're perfect, keep, stay down. But anyway... So, Lord, we come here tonight. Lord, we don't want to be people who walk through and up through those gates after hearing this message and just act like everything's okay and we'll presume upon your grace. Lord, there is grace. You tell us to come to your throne room boldly by the blood of your Son to obtain mercy and grace, and so we thank you for that. But there's also confession of sin and repentance and humility. And Lord, we're laying these things down at your feet, and we're agreeing with you that the things that we're thinking of are sinful, and we're confessing them to you. And Lord, if there's anyone we need to go talk to and ask for forgiveness, I pray that we would do that. And then, Lord, as we move out from here, Lord, we pray that you'd fill us afresh so that when we move out, we have new mercy, new grace, fresh mercy, fresh grace. Wow, what a blessing. Thank you, Lord, for new starts and new beginnings as we move out here tonight in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen, amen.